This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel, helping you plan your best vacation to your favorite Disney destinations. Email Communicore Weekly at fairygodmothertravel.com and tell them we sent you. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And that was a lot of fun, that live show we did, wasn't it? A Halloween yes, episode? It was. I mean, the music was fantastic. I don't know about the content. Well, I, was, I thought it was, was just fantastic. understood I was talking about the music and not the content of the show itself. <laughs> yeah, we got to give the Communicore Weekly Orchestra so much more credit. We do. They do a lot without... But that's enough know, about them behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> See what I did there? Just pushed them out of the way. They all um, listen to the anyway. Yeah, so this is episode 199, one more to our 200th show. So if you hear this when it comes out, you literally have one day to call the GOAT line still. Um, yeah. So give us a call on the GOAT line at 424-785-4628. Leave us a message, and we're actually recording 200 show the day after this show comes out. So call immediately, hey, and hopefully we can tomorrow? use your message or something. Recording this tomorrow? Well, time travel, George. Oh, that's right, because we almost have the Swan Boat Oak Tree time machines. You are just making names up as we go along, aren't you? I thought our, I, I thought our Dr. Uh, Geek friend was working on something with the tree. Let's, let's just go into the history segment at this uh, point. Okay, might as well. It's time for the Park History. In episode 197, we began our look at Pacific Ocean Park uh, by starting way back in 1910. And we didn't get that far, though, because the fire in 1924 destroyed everything that was there. Uh, So the Venice Insurance Company and West Coast Theaters acquired Pickering's Beach property for $2 million just two weeks after the disastrous 1924 pier fire. And the sale was a windfall for Pickering, who took a terrible loss and would have had difficulty finding, uh, financing a new concrete and fireproof pier that Santa Monica would have insisted upon. So the new owners got a 50-year lease on the beach property, or at least they thought they did. <laughs> so when they applied for a building permit in mid-February, Santa Monica city officials informed them that they wouldn't grant a permit, but instead would lease the sand which the city claimed they own. Santa Monica officials intended to advertise for bids for a pier franchise on their property. The stunned new owners filed for an injunction to stop the bidding. The auction took place on March 18, 1924, and the Venice Investment Company, intent on you know regra- regaining control of the property, outbid several other companies and agreed to pay the city $2,000 a month. The next day, they announced plans to rebuild the pier at a cost of $3 million and began work one week later. Other than uh, clearing the site, little was accomplished that spring. Work really didn't begin uh, until the next fall. So owners of both the Dome and Rosemary Theaters on Oceanfront Walk put higher priority on reopening than the Venice Investment Company did. The Rosemary Theater began operating immediately in temporary quarters on the promenade at Kinney Street. The new 1,600-seat Dome Theater, rebuilt in only 23 days, opened on May 30th at the proposed entrance to the pier. 
so Lick, who whose uh, peer resided across the Venice uh, boundary line, was able to begin construction almost immediately. And work on his peer progressed rapidly, and by May 14th, the Bonton Ballroom was open. Carlisle Stevenson and his orchestra entertained nightly and all day on weekends, and Lick's new pier was basically the same layout as his old pier, uh, the Bonton Ballroom, the Dodgem Ride, and a few concessions on the south side of the pier, with space for a roller coaster behind. Lick's uh, need for a, uh, a new coaster that summer, so he, he contracted uh, Pryor and Church to rebuild their famous Giant Dipper coaster on the site formerly occupied by the Zip, and the 85 uh, high foot ride opened on July 4th, 1924. By fall, 200 men began working on the 960-foot-long, 275-foot-wide Ocean Park Concrete Pier. Work progressed steadily, and the owners expected it to open for Easter. Uh, they built the structure entirely of reinforced concrete and steel. The pier, too, was fireproofed with a concrete deck. Eight fire hydrants were connected to a 200,000-gallon tank on the roof of the Dome Theater. Construction took a few months longer than expected. The Egyptian Ballroom was the first to open on June 27, 1925, and its interior was a replica, uh, in miniature of course, of the Temple of Ramses II, the King of Egypt. Dance music was provided by Dave Schnell's orchestra, and Jones's uh, Fun Palace on Oceanfront Walk opened several days later. The large uh, funhouse-style structure contained slides, rotating barrels, a miniature coaster, various kiddie rides, and a large ornate Parker carousel. The Ocean Park Pier celebrated its grand opening with a 10-day festival beginning on Saturday, August 29, 1925. 100,000 people visited the pier on opening day and watched Jake Cox make a fire dive. Fire? Really? Um, <laughs> they didn't learn into, their lesson. I know. Into a tank of water. I guess that makes it okay. So new rides included a 75-foot-tall high boy roller coaster, an aerial swing, speedboats, flying planes, a Tunerville Funhouse, a Loof Carousel, a 150-foot-high lighthouse slide, a miniature auto speedway, the Rosemary Theater, and a billiards and bowling center. So the beer was the, the beer. The, well, I'm sure they sold beer also, but Probably. the pier was doing great business. So in 1927, they added new attractions. Uh, the whip and scooter rides were placed between the Merry-Ground Building and the Dome Theater. Other new attraction, attractions included the pig slide, uh, the freak sh- uh, slideshow, which I don't know what that is, but that sounds awesome. Um, captive aeroplanes, Tango, Rabbit, and the Chinatown and Underworld Waxworks. So the latter was a unique exhibit featuring 29 realistic scenes like a Chinese opium den, just like you want your kids to go through. Um, there was a wedding showing slave girls, again, what you want your kids uh, to see. Oh, it gets uh, better. An electrocution at Sing Sing and <laughs> Brooklyn's Black Hand Kidnappers in action. Um, there's also crime in Parisian sewers and several dramatically portraying scenes of beheadings and tortures. I mean, so, yeah, what is happening? Yeah. And when you talked about, you know, you could watch people on the whip and then you can watch people on their nene. Is this? <laughs> oh, no. No? Okay. No. So you the, made it. Uh, no. The, uh, the Ocean Park Pier was expanded for the final time during the summer of 1929. Uh, in April, the company announced $300 million worth of improvements. They lengthened the pier 500 feet and built five new buildings and attractions. Uh, foremost was a $150,000 shoot the shoots ride, the highest amusement shoot and the only one ever built on a pier. Its huge pool at the bottom contained 150,000 tons of water. Uh, flat bottom boats made a thrilling descent down a 120 foot high, 30 degree sloped water runway into a three foot deep pool. Uh, other rides installed nearby 
were a Ferris wheel and an arrow glider. Jones's Fun Palace was converted into a roller skating rink. Uh, spending money became scarce once again once the Depression began in the 1930s. The worst year was 1932, uh, but the Venice-slash-Ocean Park piers didn't begin to recover until the summer of 1935, when the Pacific Electric Trolley Fare was reduced from 50 cents to 35 cents. Unfortunately, it was during that peri period when the, great, uh, the Giant Dipper roller coaster was removed from the Lick Pier. Mike Alma's Reptile Garden opened on the end of the Ocean Park Pier in 1936, and a Waltzer ride was installed the following year. In 1938, Ed Martin's Diving Bell began operation just inland of the chutes, and Rudy Islands built another scooter ride next door of his Luth Carousel. A kiddie ride called Fun and Movie Land also opened that summer. Can't imagine what scenes were in Fun and Movie Land. Um, beheadings and Chinese opium den. Yeah, crazy. Okay, Scarface. So, <laughs> Scarface. The, uh, the old Egyptian dance hall, which had been vacant for some time, became the Sportland Arcade in 1939. Venice Pier's Lindy Loop was moved adjacent to the High Boy Coaster, and the Fun in the Dark ride next to the Whip began a run that lasted two years. The Bug House Mirror Maze-style funhouse replaced it just prior to World War II. Uh, two aerial-type rides were placed in the large open area seaward of the Tunerville Funhouse. Once World War II ended, the Ocean Park Pier began a period of renovation yet again. First, they installed a double Ferris wheel near the end of the pier. Edmund Martin's huge straddle liner, which he had begun in 1941, had uh, finally begun or neared completion. People predicted that its cards attached to the tower's long swivel arms would fly off and land in the ocean, which actually sounds like, kind of like a good time. <laughs> so the Shoot the Shoots closed permanently in late summer after an accident claimed the life of a little boy. He stood up and fell out of the boat as it slid down the ramp. Four years later, Harry Cooper's Kitty Town opened at the bottom of the ramp where the pool stood. This enclosed area had a miniature roller coaster, an airplane ride, and several small kitty car rides. However, these changes did little to increase business or the waning popularity of the old-fashioned amusement pier. Teenagers and young adults instead were staying at home to watch television or driving their cars to outdoor movie theaters for entertainment. And the closing of the bingo games in 1949 deprived the pier, especially the Lick Pier side, of much of its income. By 1951, even the Aragon Ballroom had fallen on hard times. Was that because he went after the ring? I was thinking so. so <laughs> the, uh, is that Aragorn? Same difference. I get them all confused, yeah. So the, uh, the most recent orchestra to play there drew only eight couples. Uh, its manager, in a last-ditch effort to salvage its declining business, hired band leader Lawrence Welk to perform a miracle. Uh, Welk's brand of light, popular, danceable music drew crowds despite the competition of Tommy Dorsey at the nearby Casino Gardens. KTLA was persuaded to resume its telecasts. After it became popular, Dodge Dealers became its sponsor and the show became a popular national television show. In 1956, CBS and the Los Angeles Turf Club decided to convert the decaying Ocean Park Pier into the new $10 million sea theme park complete with, uh, to compete with the newly opened Disneyland in Anaheim. Uh, they closed the park after Labor Day and hired the best amusement park designers and Hollywood special effects artists to transform the park, and it would open in the summer of 1958 as Pacific Ocean Park. They, like Disney, found corporate sponsors to share the expenses of some of the exhibits. To save money, they renovated existing buildings and incorporated six of the old attractions into the layout. The Roller Coaster Merry-Go-Round, the Tunerville Fun House, the Glass House, the Twin Diving Bells, and the Stratoliner Ride. They called the new park Pacific Ocean Park. 
The 28-acre park was decorated throughout in a sea green and white art modern uh, look. Its entrance uh, set amidst fountains, uh, sculptures, and large seahorse and clamshell decorated the entire thing. It kind of set the mood for everything you'd find within. The ticket booth in Neptune's courtyard was set under a six-legged concrete starfish canopy. Plastic bubbles and seahorses uh, adorned its top. All-day admission was 90 cents for adults and much less for children. This included, you know, access to the park, uh, Neptune's Kingdom, the Sea Circus, and the Westinghouse Enchanted Forest Exhibit, which doesn't seem like it goes together. Not at uh, all. <laughs> other rides and attractions were at an additional cost. So opening day on Saturday, July 28, 1958, drew 20,000 people and dozens of Hollywood celebrities. Sunday's 37,262 paying customers brought traffic jams to the area. During the first six days, it outperformed Disneyland in attracting customers. Visitors entered the park through Neptune's Kingdom, where they descended in a submarine elevator to the oceanic corridors below. Across from the elevator was an enormous sea tank, where it appeared a shark and its prey shared the same tank. Beyond, and covering one entire wall, was a large diorama filled with creatures that couldn't live in captivity. Um, motorized artificial turtles, manta rays, sawfish, and sharks glided by over coral reefs and hanging seaweed, all sponsored by Coca-Cola. The park also had a ton of other attractions, such as, like I mentioned, the Westinghouse of Enchanted Forest and the Nautilus Submarine Exhibit, which included a 150-foot model of an atomic reactor section of a submarine. Um, a House of Tomorrow was also there, which featured a room of electronic appliances and a robot from the 1939 World's Fair. Uh, there was also a sea circus, diving bells, a skyway from one end of the pier to the other, and the Union 76 Ocean Highway. There was also a flight to Mars, the Flying Dutchman, which was very much like Pirates at Disney, um, Deepest Deep Roller Coaster, Mr. Dolphin, and the Mystery Island Banana Train Ride. You know, I wonder if there's always money in the Banana Train Ride. There has to be. There has to be. So, okay. So, the Banana Train Ride. Just, and which... just Dolphin, not Mr. Dolphin. Uh, Mr. Dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> Arrested so development <laughs> jokes. <laughs> Is that Lucille? Um, <laughs> let's talk about Pacific Ocean Park. Anyway, so going back to the Mystery Island banana train ride, uh, this is where passengers boarded a tropical banana plantation train and traveled through bamboo jungle to the seaward end of the pier. The train circled a bubbling volcanic crater and passed through rotating tunnels that simulated an earthquake. Uh, then riders entered a spider cave um, and then entered a mountain full of geysers. I guess it wasn't that scary when I said it. Uh, they then passed through a rainstorm complete with lightning and thunder before returning to the station. And it was the park's best ride. Pacific Ocean Park also had two dining and shopping areas. Uh, inside the park was a recreation of a New England harbor called Fisherman's Cove. And outside, along Oceanfront Walk, was the International Promenade offering, you know, cuisine and authentic foreign restaurants, uh, as well as exotic souvenirs, gifts, and imports from the various shops. And, you know, many people enjoyed the park because when it, when it closed for um, remodeling on January 5th, 1959, it attracted over a million, almost two million visitors. Um... Management decided to add four new attractions at the cost of $2 million. And actually, only two of the attractions were completed. Uh, and they were the Space Wheels, which were double Ferris wheels, and the Fun Forest, which was a children's area. Yeah, Space Wheels at an ocean park? It makes sense to me, guys. Sure, why not? All right, since the second season's attendance wasn't as good as the first, the owners decided to close it in October for the winter. Then a month later, they announced that they sold the park to John Moorhard for $10 million. 
The new, uh, the new owner instituted a one-price admission policy to attract more customers. He set the uh, price the following spring at $1.50 for adults and $1 for children. The Sea Serpent roller coaster was an extra 25 cents, well, 25 cents, excuse me, because it was the one ride not owned by the park. Moorhead's goal was to run the park as a small family amusement park instead as competition to Disneyland. He expected to raise prices for the summer. Unfortunately, as it usually happens, the park continued to lose its customers. The trouble was that Pacific Ocean Park was in a rundown, seedy part of town, and the nearby streets were littered with people living on them who were accosting customers for money. Uh, local teenagers whose parents frowned on them going to the park on weekend evenings told them that they were going to a movie and sneak down to Pacific Ocean Park instead. That's how kids had to get there. Exactly. So the park, too, was having trouble maintaining its own operation. It offered a large number of rides and attractions for the price, but with such a high overhead, it had to skimp on maintenance. Rides were often broken, and everything deteriorated against the rough ocean elements. In short, the park was run down, but it did, however, attract uh, 1,216,000 customers in 1963. It was sold in October 1963 to Irving Kay, a San Francisco real estate developer, for $7.5 million. At first, he leased Pacific Ocean Park back to the management, then in January, sold the park to Roberts Company for $2.5 million. The 1964 season was the most successful, 1,663,000 visitors. Uh, new rides included a flat ride called the Himalaya and the Monster, Ho Monster Mouse Steel Roller Coaster, where the Fun Forest once stood. And the kitty rides were moved to the Fisherman's Village area. Of course. Uh, built in 1965, Santa Monica began its Ocean Park Urban Renewal Project. Uh, there was wholesale demolition of nearby buildings and closing of streets leading to the park. The entire area was chaos while they built two large apartment towers nearby. In short, visitors couldn't reach the park and attendance plummeted by half more than half to 621,000 in 1965 and 398,000 in 1966. Roberts paid bills rarely, at not even his modest lease rent to Santa Monica, to say the least. Eh, so obviously this that's a problem because mm -hmm. finally, at the end of the 1967 season, uh, Pacific Ocean Park's creditors took action and forced the, uh, the park into involuntary bankruptcy. Uh, Santa Monica precipitated the action when they filed suit to take control of the property because Roberts owed them uh, $17,000 in back rent since 1965. Mm -hmm. The park closed on October 6, 1967. So the park's uh, assets were auctioned off on June 28, 1968. The proceeds from the sale of the 36 rides and 16 games were used to pay off creditors. The park's dilapidated buildings and pier structure remained until several fires and the final demolition in the winter of 1973-74 removed it from all but people's memories. Today, there isn't even a sign saying where the park once stood. Um, for a park that had such a short life itself, it's got a lot of fond memories for people. Yeah, and I mean, the, specifically the Pacific Ocean Park yes. version of it, it wasn't there for that long, but a lot of people in this area remember it very, very fondly. Yeah, especially, and I was amazed at the long history once we started going over this, but um, if you have any memories of position, wow, Pacific Ocean Park, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call on the CommuniCorps Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd, he's a geek, cause we all like to hear him speak. 
to listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's book of the week. This week's book is Before Ever After, The Lost Lectures of Walt Disney's Animation Studio by Don Hahn, who we all know his name, and I gotta look at this one, Tracy Miller Zarnicky, who unfortunately I don't know enough about, but the book was awesome anyways, but I don't want to give too much away. Um, so I pretty much read everything that Don Hahn has released, and I really enjoyed it, especially because you get his unique perspective on uh, being an animator and producer at Disney and other places as well. Uh, I thought this book was going to be uh, a lot closer to the Walt Stanfield lectures that he released a few years ago, which were basically rep reproductions of the lecture notes from the Disney Studios. And, you know, those those were pretty fantastic. They really were geared towards a very specific and a very narrow audience. This book, however, is just chock full of lectures that are totally applicable today in a lot of situations. Um, you know, and while they may have been directed towards the staff of the studios at various times, it was still an incredibly interesting read. And, you know, even I was able to take stuff away from it. Yeah, I really wasn't expecting uh, the amount of information and... Seriously, how cool the included notes by Don and, uh, oh crap, the other author. I keep forgetting her name, which is sad. I'll remember it's like Tracy. Losing your Don screen and cred. Tracy. Don and Tracy. Don and Tracy. Um, uh, they added a lot of uh, sort of historical essays to it as well. Um, basically, though, during the 1930s, Walt Disney invited a lot of artists and architects and essayists and a comedian uh, to the studios to lecture for the staff. Um, and along with the inception of Cal Arts, uh, you'll really see that they had uh, Walt had an eye for educating his staff. He wanted them to be at the top of their game and be able to create the kind of animation that he wanted. Yeah, and you know, at the top of the game, they definitely were. Um, the lectures, including the book, are pretty uh, awe-inspiring, actually. Mm -hmm. And I'm obviously not animating any cartoons anytime <laughs> soon. I don't think George is either. No. Um, but the words of wisdom imparted by the guest lecturers is pretty great, and it was kind of a pick-me-up in a lot of ways for you know for me and maybe for other people too. I don't know. Yeah, you know, it, the book basically is just compiling the lecture notes, and at the time these and still are they would be considered very prominent people uh, in the 1930s. The, the book is presented in a wonderful way for laymen, basically, uh, and as well as animators and art historians are going to like it. The book's broken down by subject, and within each section, uh, there's an historical essay that introduces the subject, as well as a brief biography of the lecturer. And there are some really great photos as well. Now, the entire lecture is presented from transcribed notes from the archives, um, and they actually have... Uh, photographed reproduct or presented reproductions of the pages themselves and um it, it's kind of amazing how they've done it and it makes the book very large and very heavy yes so. yes if you haven't been going to the gym um yeah. maybe you don't have to you can use this book as, <laughs> as a weight really um but i mean what i really loved about the book was how the notes were presented you know there was no yeah. really outside comments on them except for you know from the comments at the time it, no they weren't updated they just were what they were at the time, and it was really cool to see that. Um, you know, I don't want to say in person because there are reproductions on the page, but it was really cool yeah. to see the notes right there. Yeah, I mean, they they reproduced notes in their entirety, uh, sort of very similar to the Lost Notes books of Herman Scalthasis, which we've covered uh, before. But to me, I really can't talk about how important this book actually is and how it's going to be. 
you have the full lecture notes from various speakers over the years and it really goes into a lot of detail about so many different things not just characters stories um, how to tell jokes how to present jokes with comedic timing um, you know the the notes are not only from visiting lecturers but they're also from some of the premier artists in the studio like Norm Ferguson spends a whole lecture talking about how to animate Mickey Mouse because he was the one who redid the whole uh, Mickey Mouse gave him that stretch and squash cutesy feel that we have um, and you also have people discussing you know the art of figure painting and how to do action scenes it, it's really quite impressive what they put together yeah, I mean, the, the wealth of knowledge in here may seem a little overwhelming at first, but again, this isn't one of those books that you read cover to cover in one sitting. It's something that you can kind of bounce around, you can read lectures on your own, you can, you know, pick it up and come to it later. You just kind of go around with it, and, you know, the topics vary, but the inspiration you get from them, it's all there. It's going to be the same from every single one. Oh, yeah. So any student of animation or anybody with a, with a decent an interest in animation is going to cherish this book. And what Don and Tracy have put together is going to be something that people are going to relish, really, and tear apart for years to come. So this week's book is Before Ever After, The Lost Lectures of Walt Disney's Animation Studio. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. In Frontierland at the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World, right next to the shooting gallery, there is a poster for Texas John Slaughter's Academy of Etiquette. And the tagline says, the Academy of Etiquette will make them do what they oughta. Now this refers to the 1950s TV serial, Texas John Slaughter, which ran as part of the uh, Wonderful World as Disney. And the theme song for uh, Texas John Slaughter was, Texas John Slaughter, Slaughter made them do what they oughta, and if they didn't, they died. Wow. <laughs> Very literal, I guess. <laughs> Very literal. And unfortunately, no good way to segue into <laughs> our Year of a Million or So in Limited Time Cadets prize for this week. I'm not going to lie. I kind of picked that one to see what the segue was going to be. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, well, it's if like, you What is he going to come up with for this one? If you don't become... Speaking of dying of fun... <laughs> that or just you ought to join... There we go. That works. That's the best we can do. So, okay. So, if you haven't been keeping up with us for the past seven or eight months or so, we've been giving away a prize every single week to a lucky cadet that has emailed communicorweekly at gmail.com with their name, address, and birthday so we can send out the prize. Hooray! And yay, this week's prize is a wonderful prize pack, a Disney prize pack from Fairy Godmother Travel. And the winner is... Becky E. from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Ooh, yay! Right, so, um, Becky, look out for that prize pack. It should be showing up soon. And take a photo, post it on Twitter or Facebook, and share it with us. Yes, please, we want to see that you received it. Exactly, and if you want to join, don't forget, just email communicorweekly at gmail.com because we still have about two months left. Mm -hmm. it's getting close, so... Well, that means, guys, we have reached the end of another episode of Communicore Weekly. So thank you so much for watching and listening. However you watch or listen to the show, whether it's on iTunes or you're watching the video version on YouTube, give us a rating on iTunes, leave us a comment. We want to know what you thought of this week's episode. Yes, please do. And as we mentioned, you can always email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com. 
to tell us how you're flushing on your own terms or just to say sup, Corey. We get more emails about flushing on your own terms lately <laughs> than anything else. They seem to go in waves of things. Um, you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Weekly. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imaginerding. He's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, give us a call on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line at 424-785-4628. And visit communicoreweekly.spreadshirt.com and get an awesome t-shirt because there are plenty of them. There are plenty. Yes, there are. Also, if you want your official cadet membership card or a Communicore Weekly sticker, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly P.O. Box 432 Orange, California 92856 and I will get it out to you. Yay, and you can always visit patreon.com slash Weekly and learn how you can help support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show.